You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. If you haven't had a chance to check out the Alpha Burley Pro, it is a 100% top-to-bottom waterproof boot. They're perfect for the style of hunting that is done this time of year, whether you're a waterfowl hunter or walking through some swamps to get to your favorite tree stand. Check out the Alpha Burley Pro. They come in a variety of camo options and insulation options go visit lacrossefootwear.com lacrosse boots done right since 1897 welcome to the land and legacy podcast this is your host adam key and matt die and we're right here sportsman's nation podcast network on the habitat heroes session and we've got a full lineup for you guys this week and next week as we prepare for rutcation. I think everyone's on rutcation this year. I don't know. I've seen so many posts about rutcation this, rutcation that. And uh, we are preparing podcast-wise to be able to put out enough content that we can kick back a little bit and hunt some ourselves. So that means three hours of podcasts yeah, for us tonight. That's right. Got to hit Yeehaw. it and get it. That's it. And we have set up so that that three hours, four podcasts, two hunting, two habitat, and we are going to cover kind of a part one, part two of each. So we've got part one, which is going to focus on the habitat side of bottlenecks and bedding areas, and then we have part two on the hunting side, which will focus on hunting bottlenecks and bedding areas because that's a crucial strategy this time of year that's what we're getting into exactly and so it's kind of a way for us to explain our habitat take on these how to make them how to improve them how to manage them and then on the hunting side how we use that habitat plan to then be successful on the hunting side we've got a bunch of stories to share a bunch of observations that we've made um, and it's just a great time of the year to be outdoors. So, uh, who right. doesn't want to be talking about some of their hunting strategies and success? And, you know, when we launched the hunting side, it was kind of a way for us to continuing to continue talking about habitat, even during hunting season, because 
no matter what, there's somebody out there who may not care about actually deer hunting. He's more concerned about just he he gets he gets his thrill out of improving habitat or doing maybe he's a big turkey hunter so he spends the fall preparing for turkey season who knows what it is but Mm -hmm. there's something out there for everyone that's why we have two podcasts and uh i don't know i'm I'm really excited about this week and uh ready to jump in and and cover everything that's right bottlenecks we a couple weeks ago talked about bottlenecks um, on the hunting podcast. So we're not duplicating, but that was strictly to be able to talk about identifying pod. I mean, to identifying uh, bottlenecks. Identify on, podcasts. Yeah, Go to podcast. iTunes yeah. and plug in podcast store. So that was strictly to identify bottlenecks. Um, now we're taking that step further and talking about how to manage the habitat around there. Then following up, like you said, with the hunting one. And we're going to do that through the whole month of November. So whatever... Um, weekly is important for hunters to be focusing on, we're going to kind of hit you with a double-edged sword of, okay, here's the habitat significance, but here's the hunting significance too. So um, as everyone's preparing for Sweet November, um, we are preparing for the podcast to be able to give current, fresh, um, applicable information that's going to hopefully help everyone fill some tags, and get thinking of what they need to be doing during the off-season. Even though it's definitely primetime hunting, you can start preparing for next year and making it better right now while you're in the stand. And one of the big things, you know, even we face this, is you get stands or you get situations and, and layouts done on a portion of the property, and you're like, man, that's almost perfect. I've, I've got that one. I need to do a few more things. But I, I'm going to go to that stand, and I'm going to see deer. And then you have the other ones where it's like, ah, oh, dang, there's a northeast wind tonight. The only couple of stands I have aren't great setups. This is trying to break down, and we did this a couple podcasts ago, break down individual food plots, but we're going to break down individual bottlenecks and bedding areas to where we can really um, try to make it to where every stand location we have on the property puts us set up well to harvest harvest a, a hitless deer or just see a lot of deer whatever your goals are um to me this one is bottlenecks is you know you, the rut bucks are cruising they're chasing and everybody's trying to figure out what in the world where where can i punch a tag and we always like to focus a lot of our attention on bottlenecks and hunting those bottlenecks just because here in timber country, we've got so many acorns fallen that it's like food sources are spread out everywhere. The one real kind of area that consistently has some activity would be a bottleneck um, or possibly a bedding area, depending on where that bedding area is. But bottlenecks, this topic this uh, on this podcast. And so we hunt a lot of bottlenecks and you see a lot of deer cruising through. It's kind of a, it's to me, one of the simplest ways to describe a bottleneck would be Picture cows in an open gate. It's the area that they're going to move through um, way more consistently than the rest of the pasture or the rest of the prairie. So we're trying to have that gate effect somewhere on the landscape. And how do we manage for that? Yeah, how do we manage it, create it? Um, Because a lot of places, especially in our areas, we don't, like you said, in timber country, we don't have those bottlenecks that just, I would say, naturally occur. Or man has, through other practices, land use types like 
crop country, um, we don't really have those bottlenecks no. in our ears. Yeah. Now, we do have some pasture fields and, and fences and stuff, but we're talking about managing the habitat itself within the, our timbered areas to really create them. What can we do to make that gate-like effect yeah. in the woods? And and when you so when you think about crop country, you've got fence rows, drainage ditches, all kinds of things where you have a pretty good idea where the deer are going to move um, during daylight is they're going to hug those, those areas. Um, so we may throw in some tips on those on how to improve it later on. Uh, but this podcast, we've got so many things to talk about that really comes down to identifying. That's the first thing. And if you want to identify them, go check out the hunting <laughs> podcast from two or three ago. Cause we did go through a long list of potential bottlenecks and where they might be. Yes, we sure did. Um, so what that takes us to, as we are, and a lot of hunters are, I think I think it's funny. I I feel like a lot of um, television or what may misconstrued our thoughts on the number of hunters who are in timber country because all the television, this and that, tends to be kind of crop country oriented. But for everyone in, in timber country, one of the main things that you can do to enhance a bottleneck or create one is simply create the living fence in your woods. Yep. Like a living fence? What in the world? So we're talking about hinge cutting, flush cutting, basically physical obstructions using vegetation trees to physically obstruct and steer deer in direct areas that will create that fence-like open gate situation in the timber. Where they could have walked in a 100-yard wide section, you cut on both sides, bring it in tighter, and now you've got a 30-yard, 40-yard gap that you can hunt, knowing that all the deer in that 100-yard wide swath that used to travel through there now have to go through a 30, 40-yard swipe. That's creating a bottleneck easily in the timber with a chainsaw. Or, I mean, it's it's crazy, but depending on your timber, you can even do it. You don't have to drop massive, huge trees. You can do it with mid-story campy trees and a handsaw. We've we've done it many times. And you can do it sometimes not knowing you're doing it by cutting out shooting lanes. I think yeah. a lot of times people have done that where they want to go in and, and have somebody cut out all the trees and they just leave them laying. Before you know it, the, the deer are circling 40 yards out of range or 50 yards mm-hmm. out of range. You're like, why aren't they coming through? Or, well, you've got trees laying everywhere. Yeah. Although they're not big, they're still not going to stumble There's through a bunch of... obstructions. Yeah. They're still not going to stumble through that area and go and have to walk over a bunch of treetops. But if, if you have done that before and you've observed it, then that's a great indication that, hey, you know that can work. So we can create that and design that, though, in, in the timber. Again, it's a handsaw or a chainsaw, and generally the, the majority of people have access to those. I think of um, the property that we hunted with Richard Lee in Kansas. We would purposefully go in and do that, drop trees, steer deer, because even in that crop ground, we were hunting a, a portion of timber along a river that seemed to have deer especially during the rut, they were just running wherever they wanted throughout that timber. And you'd see, you know, some one morning 200 yards away, then they'd be 40 yards away, then they'd be 100 yards away. But 
by going in with the chainsaw and cutting those those specific trees, and really they were the midst. They weren't the giant cottonwoods. They were um, hackberries, hackberries, so and mulberries. Yeah, exactly. They they dropped easy and create a mess on the ground that deer didn't want to walk through. So we started to really channelize and move that movement into uh into our effective shooting range much more consistently by doing that. It's a heck of an option. It's and it's super easy. It's just it's really just too easy. And it's one of those that even if you take even if you have a great stand that has great access and you feel like you're in the game but the the success rate isn't as high as you think it could be, you see a lot of deer but you don't get them in range. This is an option, especially mm-hmm. where you're on timber ground or or hunting a fence gap even in cross crop country where you see a lot of deer, they come out in your field, but they just don't get in range more than 50% of the time. This is a great thing you can go and do. Step one, you could even do this now if you wanted to. Catch a day, high wind, you know you can slip in there and drop a few. This may move them just a little bit closer into range. Mm-hmm. If they're already going through there naturally, uh, I, I tend to believe that those changes to the habitat, and, and we're not talking, I think this is a, a good time to just throw out a disclaimer we're talking about hinge cutting we're not talking about like decimating the woods we're talking you know let's let's think uh 10 15 yards wide maybe possibly you know let's say 60 yards long so it's a long narrow strip of stuff that you're just kind of laying over pretty sporadically we're not wanting to create just this massive i think of like what a dozer deck comes through we're not trying we're to we're make a groundhog house yeah we're not trying to make that dozer deck effect but mm. it's it's the necessary trees, those mid-story canopy trees, um, that are going to create that a physical obstruction, that barrier that deer do not want to just jump over, cross, wind through. Um, so we don't have to destroy and, and create this massive one-acre section as a living fence. Uh, I think the hinge cutting technique is kind of overused, and, and yes, we want to use it in this situation for the long-term fence-like structure, but we don't want to overuse it and, and take it way too far. I think it goes here. We're using it to steer deer. Um, yes. We're using it to really bring deer closer into into range. But we're not really changing the overall structure or integrity of the woodlot. Yeah. When we see it's hinge not a cutting, project. When we see hinge cut used in a negative way, it's when hinge cutting is turned into a TSI project. Correct. Or a bedding area project where we're doing a larger area, and even sometimes it's it's not the larger area, but it's the wrong species. So you mm-hmm. go and you hinge cut a bunch of nice young oak trees and completely change the integrity of that woodlot. That's that's the uh, the things we don't want to do. But you could pick 10, 15 yard wide strip and run it 60 yards and drop every other tree. To where you're you're not cutting every single tree in that path. You're cutting Correct. just enough to where there's an obstruction pretty much all the way from the beginning of it to the end of it. And, and because and you do want that obstruction all the way through because if there is a gap that's wide enough, and you're trying to steer deer all the way to you, mo- I, I will say they're going to find a way through if, if they want to move up higher out of uh, your effective range, and there is a big enough gap. They're going to do it. So, you know, you may need to go back in, adjust, and drop another tree through that area. But you want it to be pretty consistent. And like I said, that hinge cut, um, over time, if you were to compare that to a flush cut, that tree is going to drop 
further flat on the ground with a flush cut compared to a hinge cut, so it's going to be possibly easier to step over for a deer, and then the hinge cut is going to stay viable longer because it's alive still. Yeah, if you did it right, it is. Yes, that's right, that's right. Um, or, or enhance the the right type of tree. Yeah, Instead I was of the thinking ones that about that and yesterday. Cause a heck of a mess. Sassafras, like yeah. hinge cutting the sassafras, or it's just like, or a box elder work. Oh yeah, it's like, and it yep. just splinters everywhere. It's not a gr- they're not great species to hinge cut. No, no, um, certainly aren't. Dogwood is pretty darn tough to beat. I like I like a younger hickory too. Yeah. They're not bad, but it seems like a dogwood. It's just so – when it stumps sprouts, they love eating it. Oh, yeah, they do. They do. And that's the other thing. It, it does have some advantages for forage, um, but the main focus is creating that physical obstruction to – In this application. Steer, yes, in this application to steer deer into your effective shooting range. So that's uh, – we do this all the time. I mean, I, I, there's hardly a setup I think that we have that we don't go out and cut to steer deer specifically. Um, there's very few, unless we got it hung late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless right. But um, what's your favorite? Let's just what's some of the, the the bottlenecks that come to mind on on the farm? Oh, on the Prairie Hollow property and the uh, farm. Um, I think a doll heart as far as the bottleneck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's great. I mean, it's got proven success. But mm-hmm. once again, there's other things we can do, and we've already yep. been talking about it. Yep. What are we going to do to make this better? Well, we got to make the access better. Mm-hmm. we got to make it to where instead of walking to the, to the southern part of the bottleneck, we're going to stay on the north side, which is where we come from, um, and let the deer stay. Now, we occasionally get the deer to slip in downwind. Mm-hmm. We want to get it to where 90% of the deer stay upwind of us yep. um so that's a big change we can make um and then also once again bringing that that living fence a little further south to where we can still um bring them into range but not affect the area a lot um yep. to me let's just break down real quick because we we've, we've got a long list but i want people to understand kind of where we're coming from with our with our bottlenecks but Dollheart. When you identify, I said that early, identifying the bottlenecks. For us, it, there's a long list we mentioned on the other podcast, but for us, there's terrain changes, terrain features that create bottlenecks, elevator ridges, draws, um, saddles. Dollhart is a stand that we just absolutely love that's got a elevator ridge basically coming up. Well, by that, doing that's that... That's basically a stair-step effect in a ridge that will get you to the highest elevation, the biggest peak on that ridge. But it's a it's a smaller ridge that, again, that's just, just step up. So deer coming out of the very bottoms will use that elevator ridge to bump, then access the big ridge. That's right. And so the elevator ridge has got a bedding area on the west side of it. So that's where a lot of the deer bed. And it not only has just a bedding area, it's got west-facing, north-facing, south-facing slopes that's all been logged in the past on the neighbor and then we brought that up to the edge, and we did a heavy TSI just on our side of the fence. So it's got this great edge of of a little bit older growth into a little bit newer growth that we've edge feathered, or or not edge feathered, but TSI'd, and to where there's a lot of lot of great understory there. Mm-hmm. As as the deer feed up the elevator ridge to the big food plot up top, it's just a perfect perfect bottleneck. Um, 
But what's not perfect about the setup, perfect about the area, is our stand location. So there's always some tweaking to be made, and this year kind of proved that with with our early season hunt mm-hmm. where deer tried to hang out on the north slope. And I, we Basically, we were just <clears throat> a slightly too aggressive. It, and I say that, but other things have changed since we originally hung that stand. Your brother went in to the east of us and cut a lot of – um, other trees did a massive TSI project, and it looks great, incredible cover, and incredible amount of forage up there. So because of that additional cut, that's when we really start to experience those deer come in from the more north and, and east side of us. So because of that, now we're just going to readjust that stand location, complement these two cuts on either side of this elevator ridge, and let those deer walk into closer range as we move this stand. And then the other big thing we can do is <clears throat> improve the food plot up top. Yes. And make it way more attractive. Yep. Uh, and make it bigger and make it to where there's more food available up there to where not only are the deer conditioned to going there in the fall, but they're conditioned to going there in the summer as well. This summer we got hit with just not great growth in the food plot. We had a lot of grasses, but not a lot of legumes. So there wasn't, there wasn't knee high soybeans up there. Crabgrass came in. Uh, I think the cows got in there, if I remember right. Some For some reason, we didn't have great success. We had a drought as well. But by having great summer food on that food plot and getting deer conditioned from going from the bedding east, west of the stand in Dalhart, all the way up the slope to the big food plot, we'll get deer used to that system, more used to the living fence that we create to where it's a year-round thing of them going through this bottleneck. And, and yeah, the amount of cutting that was done and the amount of forage in those areas, summertime, growing season, even though the food plot wasn't there, there's a ton of deer hanging out. ton is. of deer hanging out in that general area. So um, it's only going to get better for sure in that area, just as we create more living fences um, to steer deer around this bottleneck. Yes, um, and, and it's kind of a broad bottleneck still. Mm-hmm. It's got more of a 7,500-yard elevator ridge as it tucks into or runs into the big main ridge. So improving that living edge, creating more of a living edge coming from the north as we walk alongside it will help it as well to where we don't have deer coming behind us. Mm-hmm. It's all work in progress. It's That's always it. we always have something to do. But Dalhart is just one example of many bottlenecks that we hunt that is going to be improved, and a lot of that is by taking notes, maybe mentally or physically, throughout the hunts as we hunted it. So we've hunted Dalhart once this year, and just in that one hunt, we go, oh, there's a lot of things we need to tweak to make this a little bit better, and that's something you can do every time you go to a stand of going. What is it that I can do to make this stand better? Yeah, this bottleneck is great, but is there something else that I can add? And that's that's the honestly the, probably the rest of the list though is is okay. The manipulation factor of you've identified it, it's already good, but let's take it to the next level in the habitat. And how how annoying is it to talk to your buddies who are like, oh, I'm hunting bottlenecks, I'm seeing a ton of deer, and you're like, I'm hunting bottlenecks too, and I'm not seeing deer. Mm-hmm. What is it about their bottleneck that makes that not, makes it better than mine. Not every bottleneck is created equally. Not at all. And, and a lot of times, I will say this, you can, from, let's say you're, you're scouting from afar, you can identify bottlenecks on aerial maps, uh, with topography, terrain, or habitat, 
and you're like, that's going to be killer. It's going to be absolutely awesome. You get there, and you're like, this is not what I expected. Those next ones that you're, you know, option, plan B, C, and D, take an overall consideration of the surrounding habitat to then understand the effectiveness of that bottleneck itself. You know what I mean? Like, just because it looks like a great pinch in that, you know, from an aerial, our deer are going to walk it because really what they're looking for in that, in a bottleneck situation is resources, high value resources, whether it's bedding or food, on either side of it. And if there's not that on either side of it, then it's not going to be that great of a pinch because deer aren't going to want to walk or need to walk through there. No. So you really, it, it really comes down to, I'll just use the analogy again, a cow and going through a gate. What is it? What is it that takes them through the gate? Is it are they walking through that gate to go to a water hole? Are they walking through that gate to go to a new, new grass, new pasture, right? Are they walking through that gate because of uh, there's a pack of coyotes out here in this pasture and they have to get through there for security? Mm-hmm. Um, who knows what the reason is? We just want to find a way to send deer through the bottlenecks. Yeah, and it, like let's just say for instance down south, you've got. Um, uh, three-year-old clear-cut on one side of this beautiful saddle, and then the other side you've got a big old soybean bottom field, right? Deer are definitely going to cross that saddle, no yeah. doubt. But if you compare it to old-growth timber and then a 30-year-old pine plantation that's getting ready to get cut, and then you have that same saddle in between, are deer going to be moving back and forth as much? Not as much, not no. Not as much. So Probably not nearly as much. Exactly. Let's take that 30-year-old old growth and then a mature timber, I think's the analogy. Mm-hmm. So you've got pine plantation that's getting ready to be cut, and you've got old growth hardwoods. And then they cut that pine plantation. Now you have great clear-cut bedding area being created here. Yep. But why would they leave that to go to old growth forest other than acorns? Other than acorns at the right time of the year, right. But how can so how do we send them back through that? Well, food plot or um, another clear cut, or um, select cut, or a bedding thicket. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a similar clear cut, but it's a little bit smaller. So we'll call it a bedding thicket, where now we have bedding areas on both sides of this bottleneck, and deer will filter through during the rut. That's to me the difference between being on site or being able to accurately identify through aerial mapping. You know the effectiveness of this one bottleneck that that that's the def- defining features of how successful a bottleneck is going to be. And also like just because you've identified a great bottleneck and you've hunted it and you haven't seen a deer doesn't mean it's not a great bottleneck. It could mean that you just don't have a high deer density or it could mean that there's not there's enough resources close by to send deer through there during daylight. Uh, I And we're or, dealing with this on a... Di- or switching winds. Or switching winds. Uh, what we're dealing with is, you know, we've identified great bottlenecks in years past uh, when we had low deer numbers, and we hunted them and didn't see a lot, or we just gave up on that area. We're like, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's not great. But now it's like we're going back to try them again because we're seeing more deer. The North Saddle's a great example. Not, Chad yeah. hunted it for a while, and it, he saw some deer. I hunted a little bit. And it he was told like, me yesterday in the stand we talked about it. Yeah, and talked about kind of why they're they're starting to make that jump and that transition um, in that saddle. And he said he hunted it several times, and he saw one seven pointer. Yeah, on that stand that's been it. But now, as we look at it and say, down below on the other side of that saddle, on that 
crop field that was just pasture or corn. It was all grown, grown yeah. up field whenever when, he when hunted he, it. Yeah, so it was an overgrown field, um, and not they were they would never bed in that field, would they? The very edge, the very edge of that. If that, if that. So yeah. at that time, there wasn't really even a good resource on on the southeast side of the saddle. Now there's three acres of standing Stratton soybeans, and then twenty acres of the cattleman's treasure on that side. Now we're like, holy cow! We've transitioned and changed things, and and now really the other side, the loggers haven't got to. There's no there's no veterinary thickets yet, but it's sanctuary. Yep. No one's really disturbing that area. Well, that's where the logger's not at right exactly. now. So we're seeing that increase in activity through that saddle because of those resources that are in place now. And it's like, we're going to hunt that soon because that cutting link is like showing deer moving through that. And then another area kind of looping around the low side of uh mountain. So there's a great example of how the habitat truly does affect the success or the future success of a bottleneck. Again, just because you've hunted in the past, consider what has changed in the greater area outside of just that bottleneck to know if it's going to be a good spot. And then once you get there, create that living fence. Let's say, because that bottleneck itself, that, that saddle is a little bit broader than another one that we hunt, mm-hmm. which is good for a a wind situation so we know it can be hunted but we can create a living fence when we find the right wind to hunt it and crunch it down a little bit more to make it a just very distinct crossing and it's going to be good yeah and 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 actually the fact that it's a little bit broader saddle will in the long run be more effective because we hopefully have more consistent winds Mm -hmm. the the south saddle is horrible to try and figure out um consistent wins so the, I don't the think time chad and i hunted it it was just like wind checker Oof. if we would have used down. the milkweed <laughs> seed it would have probably just sit there and whirled around yeah. us like a tornado yeah. like a fish or it wouldn't a, have a, ever left it a just, toilet bowl just yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh it's terrible and so i don't think that one's gonna be good until it gets logged and leaves drop and we thin out that yeah canopy. no not at all and and I've identified the tree. It's on the south side. It's kind of mid-slope. But the best crossing where they cross it is on the north side. And so it's going to be trying to pull those deer, creating a better travel corridor mm-hmm. on the south side of that. That way they're coming by within range. Yeah. Or we just we just level it all and make it a food plot. <laughs> no. No, no, no. That's too good. <laughs> yeah. That's too good. Yeah. Uh, to me, there's there's a lot of great – that's why I don't get – upset when people are like we oftentimes look at flat ground as being the primo deer hunters paradise it seems to be very desirable because it tends to be cropland again cropland better food more defined uh bottlenecks more defined bedding areas the few and far between you might find them um but then again you kind of it's so flat they kind of other than erosion ditches it's pretty well you kind of have the defined bedding areas but you can't really create bottlenecks or um create them in a sense where you you pretty much just have to hunt them the way they are Mm. um but in timber ground we can really get into this and look at okay here's a bottleneck 
let's make this okay bottleneck a great bottleneck and let's do a betting ticket over here food plot over there two betting tickets on both sides here's our access you can really play more micromanager to me i know we've talked about it um off the podcast before but it's a big i think a kind of a bold statement but i think it's time to say it is if you were to look at like the midwest and like let's say northern missouri southern iowa illinois that pike county that you know that type of habitat where it's wooded drainages crop fields uh overgrown fields this and that where it's very broken up there's bottlenecks just jump out jump off the map at you but i feel like we can create in timber country and terrain country the exact same efficiency and success that those people find in patterning, conditioning, and moving deer across a property if you have a well-thought-out, managed plan yeah. in place. Yeah, those, it, those bottlenecks are there. It's, it's, like, it's like you have to expose them, reveal them in timber and terrain country because you can't just physically see them on a map. You know what I mean? Like oh, They're yeah. totally there, but you have to put other habitat types in place to complement them, and then you're like... Oh my gosh! Every deer walks here, and like it—it's true. It I don't have happen. to worry about a deer walking behind me because it's steep. Yeah. I've already created a living fence, or I've I've w- done whatever X Y Z, and and they're gonna walk through this saddle. They're gonna walk at the edge of this field. They're gonna walk through this little ravine because I put everything in place where this is their best chance at surviving. This is their mm-hmm. best chance at at um, thriving. And when I say surviving, it's we're putting in place to where when they walk through, the wind seems to be in their favor. Um, they've got great cover on one side. They've got security all the way through. They've got food on the other. It's just a natural routine for them to travel that area. Mm-hmm. And so with these things that we're talking about, these techniques of creating the living fence, the bedding area thickets, the uh, food on one side of a saddle, bedding on another, vice versa, you can create – those incredible pinches, these incredible bottlenecks that you dream about there, you can create this in North Georgia. You can create this in Western North Carolina, in North Central Pennsylvania. Like those areas that you don't think of as just being great you know, predictors of deer movement because you can't see them, you can't scout them as easily. You can do that in these places by doing, implementing what we're talking about managing around these bottlenecks and then when we're getting into late october early november when deer are just moving and grooving and you're kind of like oh my gosh there's deer running everywhere well yes there's deer running not everywhere but all the time through my my bottlenecks you know the where the cruising be. buck he's going, going through through these places they take the path of least resistance a lot not to say every time they do but a yep. lot of times they do especially during the rut when they're trying to conserve energy they would much rather conserve the energy for chasing that doe rather than climbing that hill mm-hmm. that's behind your bottleneck um, it's just it's a very awesome way to bring deer in and so this is something that we've I guess learned or observed over the uh over the last couple of years to where it's like um you look at land prices and you look at land prices and hunting properties across the country and terrain country 
timber country is a lot more affordable in most places than crop country for obvious reasons. And it's a little bit harder to um, manipulate and improve the ground when somebody's planting a crop field. So to mm-hmm. me, I look at it and I'm like, you know, timber ground, hilly terrain might be a pretty good option to get more ground at a cheaper price than if I go somewhere. Now, it's going to take more work to get it there, most likely, to get it to where you want it. But once you do, you have this just amazing feature at a lot more affordable price than if you went and bought 500 acres or 100 acres in crop country. Yeah, it's true. And I, you, you're you from this area. Um, I'm from and hunted years, 20 years or so in the mid-Atlantic region, but I kind of I, I I go back in my head I'm like I wish I knew what I know now in that area because it's like those old places that you used to hunt those 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 stands that you grew up in um, those properties that you're like oh gosh yeah I could totally have done that and made it so much better it was already a good place but if I had just done this or if I had not done that. Or if I had hunted it from this way or accessed it from this way. And it just comes together. It comes so full circle um, when you truly do, I guess, accentuate the natural features and the natural bottlenecks with quality habitat. Yeah. It's like, wow. And that's what, to me, we're, when we start naming off this list, this isn't just improving a bottleneck. This is improving the habitat, improving it for a lot of species. Yeah. When you look at the native or the living fence, you say, well, you're just creating it, creating it just a, a weird-looking blowdown in the Linear, timber. Yeah. But when you look at the, if you're doing hinge cutting and you're doing flush cutting and not using a herbicide, you're getting a lot of um, stump sprouts and regrowth that are highly, highly sought-after forage um, during a large part of the year, especially some of the biggest stress periods of the year when you look at late winter, early spring. And there's all kinds of food you created. There's all ki- a lot better cover um, available. Even for and, just like, like a rabbit, a cottontail, and or not, a wood rat. It, Who cares? And not even, not even just by bringing the canopy down, but then you're going to probably get more sunlight, which creates more other species, more broadleaves and other, uh, other beneficial species in the timber or on the edge of timber to where now you're getting even more benefit, not only for the wildlife, but for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's so true. So we didn't get off the podcast, but we got off the notes a little bit. We just kind of went on that. Like this is, how, I think this is how important it is. To, yes. to manage these because yes, it's important for a, the land, which we love so dearly. But if you are a hunter, this will hit you at your core. It's like, I got to be doing this stuff because I'm frustrated that whether it's my neighbor kills all the deer or I'm not seeing what I want to see. I'm not seeing what my buddies are seeing when you're texting each other in the stand. This is the kind of stuff that's going to get you there. Um, so, the next one, and we kind of mentioned it, but let's just create a bedding area on either side of a bottleneck. That's what this magical time of the year is all about. We're going to talk a lot about it on the hunting podcast, so stick with us there. But if you have bedding areas on opposing sides of a bottleneck, where and what is a buck going to do the first week of November? 
He's looking for those bedding areas. He's, He's trying to find those, those receptive does. does. And they're in the best, thickest, nastiest cover. It's it's seriously just that simple. So let's say you've got a, a – I guess let's say we've got a big old bottom that runs north to south, two wood blocks on the east and west side of that, and there's a fence line, a wooded fence line that breaks up the bottom field. If you have a bedding area on the west side of the bottom fields and then one on the east side of the bottom fields, they're most likely going to use that fence row, that bottleneck that was already there, to cross back and forth. But if those bedding areas weren't there, he may have used that or he may have swung high outside the um, bottom ground or just shot across it any which direction or any distance away from that fence line. He could have. But now... If placed appropriately, he's going to be able to utilize and want to utilize that fence row more times than he does. It's a, it's a, again. I think we always go back to it. It's just a, it's a game of numbers. You know what I mean? Like percentage-wise, he's going to do this over this more times. Um, here, it's, here it's is super the, simple. The dilemma a lot of us face is we don't have the time to devote. In the woods, like some of the people with TV shows do. Mm-hmm. We're working full-time jobs. We're trying to do <laughs> real estate or whatever it is as much as possible. Or, or a lot of hours of the day are devoted to that to where there's not a lot of hours that we can devote to hunting and being in the stand. Mm-hmm. So how can we make sure that when we are in the stand, we have the best chance possible? And it's not by having the most corn on the ground or or it really comes down to, especially this time of year, trying to have the essentials of good habitat, and that's cover, security, food, and water. Um, and this one, bottlenecks, comes into play almost in between all those of creating optimal habitat with great bottlenecks. I think a lot of... Uh, there's a There's a debate, I guess, that goes on among hunters... Um, that says, I either love the rut or I hate the rut. Yeah. And de- I think it's property dependent, honestly. Um, is your farm set up better for the rut or is it or is it not? Is it more just a feeding location? Um, but this type of work that we're talking about, creating these bedding areas during the rut, I would like to hunt the property that's got the distinct bedding areas versus one that doesn't. I think, and, and especially in correlation to the bottlenecks, because at that point you know what they're going to do. I, that's the thing that I guess the the atmosphere, the thoughts that roll around um, the the rut is it's just all so unpredictable. There could be running everywhere or anywhere. They could be doing this. They could be doing that. Yeah, but they're going to prefer this place because it's like this bottleneck or this trail because it just makes sense for what they're doing. As food is the most essential part to late season success, cover is probably the most essential part of the rut success. I agree 100%. Because during late season, we all know the power of food. Deer are trying to eat, stay warm, survive the winter. They're trying to pack the pounds back on. But during the rut, they're trying to basically breed does or does are trying to avoid bucks. And so they're finding the thickest cover or, as most states have, a rut 
or a rifle season or a lot of hunters hit the woods during the rut because we know that's when deer are the most susceptible to doing dumb things. Mm-hmm. So there's more pressure. So deer also seek cover because they're trying to avoid all the pressure. So you've got them seeking cover for that. And basically natural instincts tells them, I want to go hide because I'm not ready to um, reproduce yet. And I'm sick of getting pestered by every two and a half year old buck that comes in the food plot. Yeah. And so that to me, that's where improving the cover on the farm can help you during those rut sets. For for sure. Um, another big one is improving food on one side of the bottleneck and creating a food-to-cover pattern. So you have food on one side, cover on the other. On a predictable hunt, what do you naturally do? They're going to leave food from in the morning situation, early morning, and head back to bedding. And the opposite in the evening, unless it's a super cold, frosty morning, they might delay their their um, their trip and not be in the food plot, come out after the frost goes away from the bedding. Either way, it's predictable. You can know what's going to happen because you've got these resources um, in place and you're just monitoring the bottleneck. And here's one thing that, that we've done too, just from a monitoring standpoint of the bottlenecks, there's some places that are just tough to access and you want to leave just undisturbed as much as possible. Is this the Cuddy Link system? I, we're just we're testing it just because it just sounds too cool. And we haven't gotten an email yet during the podcast, but before we recorded, um, I don't know how many images there were, but you're able to place these cameras and they use a radio frequency to communicate with one another and they link to one another uh, basically as a chain and we how many are out there 12 12 12 cameras in remote locations remote bottlenecks that we've identified monitoring them and we're getting email updates from them um, cuz they're all sent back they're all connected and all get sent back to a home camera but it's like holy cow if you have the ability whether it's cellular or, or you know whatever use that in these areas um so that's a cool note. I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if we do get one. It kind of gets quiet on the podcast. Yeah. We're going to be like, okay, what, what showed up? To me, and to the thing about the Cuddy Link, there is no partnership or anything. We're no. just testing a product that we've heard about, and we think, man, that could that's, be really cool. Yeah, that's going to be very impactful. And, and, worth and, so and, I hope, and I hope, that because it comes down to this, every time something new and cool comes out, people kind of throw out the sporting chance comment. Oh, like, yeah. Like the range finder last year that that or the the site, the site yeah. that range for you is kind of like well what's a sporting chance in that, uh, and then you've got like trail cameras some old school guys that say oh trail cameras are cheating but now we've got it to where they email us and so many guys are using those the thing about the Cuddy Link um, is that it's one cell phone plan that we're using for twelve cameras you yeah. don't have to pay uh, twelve different camera cell phone plans but. We're using this because we don't have the time to devote to being in the woods scouting. It, well, not only that is it, it it saves money because instead of driving an hour to the property to check them, we'll get on every 12 hours an update on what, what's there. And there's no way to go check trail cameras, nor would you ever do it every 12 hours. No. So we just know. Um, so it's just an improving of efficiency from our time and resources an hour 
each way to check and scout, that that eats miles and gas. So it makes sense. Um, so another one that we can do is planting hedge or shrub rows across open fields to create bottlenecks. So you think of an open space, um, and you're like, okay, how do I hunt this? How do I create um, a bottleneck in a wide open field? Or, or let's, I think of Kansas um, that's got just kind of wide open prairies. Um, a lot of that can be drainages or these shrubs that they're keying into um, and using them to navigate them themselves through the prairie. But we can replicate that in wide open large fields and create a bottleneck that deer are naturally going to want to travel these shrub hedgerows across fields. And it just, okay, instead of that whole big wide field that they may cross or may come out to, they're going to walk along that hedgerow that's going to have multiple rubs along it. It's going to have multiple scrapes that they're going to want to check. It's it's an opportunity for them to cross a what was a wide open field, now do it kind of in and around close to security cover. Um, if they do see danger, they can get away high, jump on either side of that hedgerow, and be shielded visually from danger. So, in essence, this creates, it kind of hits them out of weakness, but creates a bottleneck, a travel route, across what was an open field. Absolutely. I, one of the the kind of things to keep in mind, though, as you're planting them and managing the fields, whether it is, let's say you've got a food plot on one side or a old field on the other or just old field on both sides, whatever it may be, when you are managing it, uh, be careful about prescribed fire because we've heard some horror stories of people um, planting, taking time to put in these shrub rows and then a fire getting away. So if you need to disc around each side of it, whatever it may be, just ensure that as you're managing the other resources that you're not destroying this one because it has a, a serious impact um, on hunting efficiency and the overall habitat. Again, this creates uh, other opportunities for birds to be able to nest in these gray dogwoods and, and wild plums um, that can be planted. Hazelnuts, yeah, hazel whatever nuts. it is. So they're providing food not only for the wildlife, they're providing more of a shrubby um, a, a shrub structure, a shrub habitat for security for some of those birds. It's providing forage for the deer and through browse. Um, then you look at the disking, which is where we don't promote disking a lot, especially not in broad scale. But you you disk around these for prescribed fire, but you're creating bare dirt, which is beneficial to a lot of bird species that so pixie, that often like grit. that. Yeah. that like that shrub. So you're creating that right next to it. So you're doing a lot of wonderful things by planting these hedgerows or shrubby rows to to help basically punch more tags, but overall you're beneficent, benefiting so many other species. Um, and to me, it'd be like, you see them all the time. People, we have one on a, on the solar farm right down from my house where people have planted all these shrubs mm-hmm. to try and shield the eyes. But you know that if you were to go through there uh, I think they even have a road where if a deer was passing through there, you know they'd walk right through there where there's not the shrub row effect oh, yeah. to where it, it's it's really simple, but you're creating habitat for so many other species. Yes, and, and a lot of states have the opportunities to get your hands on these shrubs. You may not have to go right to your, your local nursery. Um, a lot of state programs 
they they kind of grow them themselves, and they have them at very cheap. I mean, extremely affordable options. We're talking cents per plant um, to be able to plant them. And and if you do a transect across an open field, you you want to of course have diversity in in what you're planting. Um, but it, this is a day project, if you will. Like it does not take a a huge elaborate incredible design to make this shrub row happen but the results are long term and what it can do from a hunting and habitat standpoint so that's super easy to do i would definitely if you've got that open field and you want to break it up consider playing a hedgerow shrub row another one tiny kill plots and bottlenecks to create fast food encounters to me this is there's when you say kill plot there's a lot of things we can do here we can create a highly sought-after food source, such as a clover or a brassica plot um, or a wheat plot, anything that's going to take that can probably grow in this little bitty area. Or you could look at it and say, let's plant some sort of native perennial, like a Illinois bunflower, partridge pea, some grasses mixed in, to where you get a what was just trees. You cut it out and you broadcast this seed on the ground to where now you have the the effect of cover, but also some browse when you look at the seed pods that the Illinois bundle flower and partridge pea would produce um, that the deer would 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 benefit from as well as other species. Um, and to me, so you've got cover, you've got food, you've got browse, uh, you've just created optimal habitat in a bottleneck, which is already a great travel corridor to where now you've got everything they could, they need um, right there in, in shooting range. Yeah, absolutely. Another, yeah. go ahead. What are you saying? No, it's kind of that fast food effect where bottlenecks aren't, you don't take a bottleneck and say, that's why I said that so sarcastically earlier about blowing it out and making a food plot. Bottlenecks aren't designed to be Areas where deer are just going to loaf around and hang out. They're just passing through them. And and so we're trying to create basically habitat that's going to either bring them through the bottleneck more consistently, uh, more during daylight hours, or in this case, slow them down just enough or also create more of an attractive feature to where they'll come through this bottleneck versus a similar bottleneck down the ridge. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Um Another massive one that we really need to consider is mowing trails. And this is another a p- kind of piece of equipment that we don't often talk about, but most farms have them because of this, this typical destruction that it does, but it's a bush hog. A lot of times before season, you've got an overgrown field that's grown up um, in early successional habitat, whatever it is, or just it's a pasture that's overgrown, and hunter comes in, just mows it all off because he wants to see through the whole thing. Oh, no. my gosh, that was the worst thing you could have done. Yeah. Take the bush hog and mow certain trails that you know deer typically will take. Mow them, maybe create an intersection that's visible to a hunter, wherever you're in a redneck blind or you're in a tree stand, whatever it may be. Mow trails through that thick cover and just let nature take its course. I promise those deer will walk down those passive lease resistance and those mode trails meet at the intersection and you'll have shot opportunity after shot opportunity. If you simply just let 
the remaining cover stay, but create these mode trails and intersections across so, there. Exactly. And and this really gets better if you're doing this in, let's say, old field, early successional habitat where there's a mix of some briars and brambles and grasses and forbs and shrubs to where you've got this great diversity, but it can get a little thick if there's especially briars to where now you mow this trail and you create this wonderful path of least resistance that they can walk down but still feel comfortable because they're surrounded by great habitat. Another one would be even in clear cuts. And I think down trails. south, Boom. down south, and you've got all these massive clear cuts from t- timber harvesting. And you've got skitter trails. Keep those skitter trails bush hogged every year to where once or twice a year you bush hog them. Where now you've got this road system, but you also have great travel corridors next to fantastic bedding. Um, deer use them. T- oh, it's too easy. Uh, every too day easy. the deer use them. It's it's it is it's way too easy to not do it um, to see that uh, effectiveness. One thing we didn't talk about, accidentally skipped over, was improving creek crossing. That's another big bottleneck. Um, if you're in an area that's got high steep banks, deer probably crossing in very select locations. Um, so if you need to, if it makes sense, shave those banks down just the slightest bit to make it easier, more preferred, less physical. Um, for those deer to cross those banks, it becomes a preferred location, especially when you go into those other areas that deer may cross and drop a couple trees, block it off, close the gate, if you will. Or cut out the, uh, the log jams. That could be yep. a possibility. Cut yep. out the beaver dam that came through uh, that really changed it all up, whatever it is. Well, that's another great one, honestly, um, potentially, uh, is a beaver dam. Yeah. When I was... Growing up, man, we hunted. Those were in the kind of the the bottomland swamps. Those were great bottlenecks, but they can adversely affect other bottlenecks down the way. So, you know, you got to pick and choose. But either way, there's things that you can do when deer cross water. They do it in a particular region, so yep. use that to your advantage. To uh, so the next one, we have planting more attractive food sources. Within these bottlenecks, like fruit and nut-bearing trees, um, and that kind of goes with the food plot side of it. Or yeah. when I mentioned the native things, you could plant these nut-bearing trees um, that that are going to drop a food source during hunting season. So you could plant some sort of pear or apple tree that, if you, it, it has to be with within the means of getting enough sunlight to where it can produce it, um, depending on what the bottleneck looks like. Um, but you plant something, or or you you cut out some trees around a persimmon that was producing a little bit of fruit, and watch what more sunlight does, where it's producing a lot more fruit, um, to where you have just another little beneficial um, thing going on in this bottleneck to provide even more attractiveness to cause deer to move it, use that bottleneck more during daylight. That's a pretty good, I think, evaluation rundown on managing habitat around bottlenecks. Absolutely. We are only going to talk more about bottlenecks in the other podcast this week, but from a hunting standpoint of it. And yeah. we've got stories um, and probably share a little bit more about the bottlenecks that we're going to be hunting in the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. For sure. If you have any questions, I guess, for us about habitat, consultations, feel free to email us at info 
at landandlegacy.tv. Don't forget that. We've been getting quite a few emails, which has been fun um, reading through and just listening to some people's situations. They're always unique. Yeah. That's and, super cool. And quite a few. I mean, we're coming up into November and we're, uh, consulting season starts really yeah. in December. So if you are considering that, go ahead and, and reach out to through. us. I know we're, we've had a lot of emails about that. So um, shoot us an email and let us know really where you're at and what your goals are, and, see, and we'll see if we can help you. Now we have our plant and animal profiles yes so the one i choose to chose today it kind of goes back to what i talked about earlier is like if i only known what i know now um i would have done things differently and especially with this species of tree um tends to grow more along i guess the eastern half of the united states um but as the american holly um it grows typically 25 to 60 foot tall um, stout, stiff branches, kind of in the pyramid, <coughs> excuse me, pyramid shape. So they come out a, at a diagonal. Um, they are an evergreen. They've got like a spine-tipped leaf and a red berry. Um, the reason I chose this tree is to talk about some good things that it does and offers for wildlife, which is a, a berry for um, birds, um, and then great shelter because it is an evergreen. Um, so what we would see a lot of times in Virginia was when we'd get those big snows during hunting season um, and out of season, of course, we'd see a lot of deer bed up underneath of these holly trees because of that shape and the evergreen nature, they would have less snow underneath of them. So they provided shelter and that stage when deer could get underneath of them, block from that huge amount of snow that we could occasionally get. However... On a negative side of things, and I didn't realize this until recently and going back, because of their evergreen nature, they block so much sunlight. And they're a slow grower, but they're a very stout, sturdy tree. And I say that because of the lack of fire that's been in the eastern United States. They have a very thin bark, would typically kill them and set them back. But especially in areas that have been clear cut and... Um, or had timber practices, when timber management is not followed up, the American holly seems to do so well. And a lot of areas, a lot of space, if you were where that canopy sits, is unusable for much of the year uh, for a lot of the wildlife because it's so shaded. It blocks sunlight reaching the forest floor. It's kind of like, Adam, in our area, the eastern red cedar and what we oh, see. Oh, totally. Yep. It does so much blocking of sunlight that what's on the forest floor is strictly just leaves now it does this is important um, because it does have its place and it does provide great opportunities and cover and forage for some wildlife but when out of well i guess when not managed it will get out of hand and i think tend to do more damage than if it was managed and cut and what's crazy is be, even though they have prickly leaves when you stump sprout or, or when you cut and these american holly stump sprout they're so tender a deer will crush the, the sprouts coming out um from these american holly so think about consider this if you're in the eastern united states um if you got tons of holly look at the ground around it look how much it's shading the sunlight what could be there Try cutting that tree. I'm not saying cut them all at all, but 
consider managing them. Adam, what animal? Oh, you got a cool one. Yeah, I. So you went east. I went. I'm gonna go yeah. kind of Midwest West. Um, and we've got the eastern collared lizard. As is funny though with that name. Yeah. Um, but this is a lizard that's kind of uh, very unique to a certain type of habitat. Um, it's very. Uh, it's just a very unique animal. When you think about, uh, I think about all the National Geographic and, and places you've seen, uh, or like all those um, Animal Planet where you see the lizards on the islands and people go crazy about them because they're these big reptiles. But Eastern Collared Lizard is a um, native to the U.S., but it's a bigger animal. I mean, it could be 8 to 14, on average, 8 to 14 inches long, um, which is a lot bigger than the little yeah. iguanas you see at the yeah. pet store. Um, you guys saw some in Oklahoma, yeah. and saw we some. have them here in southern Missouri. Yeah, we sure But do. what is it about the eastern collared lizard that makes it where not many people get to see them? And it's because of their habitat. Um, this animal is unique to kind of a glady rock outcropping. That's why we see them here at Glade Top Trail. We have a, we have a couple colonies of them. Uh, but they're kind of that they live among the rocks and dry open south and southwest facing limestone, sandstone, and granite glades. So, kind of a glady species. You guys saw them in the Wichita Mountains. We saw, of, yeah, Wichita Mountains. Um, and then we saw them in Osage County up in kind of north, central, northeast Oklahoma. Okay. Kind of yep. cross timbers region. That was the sandstone kind of yes. areas. So, yes. you had those big sandstone rock yep. outcroppings. Um, and so basically they're, they're unique to those rocky grasslands Mm -hmm. and think about how many rocky grasslands do you have in your backyard? Probably not many because it's a, it's a, uh, habitat ecosystem that is kind of diminishing because of encroachment of other species like the Eastern red cedar. Um, and I know they're kind of a status of a little bit of concern, um, conservation concern because of the loss of habitat. Um, and and what about the eastern collared lizard? And I didn't even mention the coolest part about I, it, and I that's the colors. Asked, making sure you, you weren't going to miss that because they are gorgeous. Like we're talking, they've got a black couple black bands around their neck. Um, some of them can be almost completely teal-bodied oh, with yeah. an orange head or orange throat. Some of them are a little bit more brown, tan-colored, but... They kind of have an aqua look to them. It's uh, one of those colors that you hardly ever see in nature. And it's mm-hmm. like when you do, you're like, it kind of takes you back. You're not expecting it. And it's so vibrant. But you notice how well they blend in with the, with the like, the, speckling, the, 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 the moss the on the rock. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's neat. And so it's a, if, if you were to just put an eastern collared lizard and somebody showed you or you showed a friend of that, they'd probably think it was some sort of exotic on some. Oh, yeah. Um, tropical island, but it's here in the Midwest and Southwest. Google it. And uh, yeah, Eastern collared lizard. Um, the thing about their habitat is when you, they're looking at shallow soil, rock outcropping, really kind of arid um, grasslands. And we have glades and in, in that habitat across the country, but it's a, it's a, it's an area that's been, that's getting encroached so much by Eastern red cedar and, and other, and other, um, species to where, and it could even be just oaks, but that is a landscape that's managed by fire, historically speaking, to where it's very open, very arid, and there's a lot of insects on those, and that's the main part of the diet for this eastern collared lizard, to where 
just because of the lack of management has caused this population to decline. And it's a great indicator that if you have healthy populations of eastern collared lizards, you probably have great habitat in that natural landscape of the mm. glade, rocky glade. Rocky outcropping, so, for sure. They're check neat. them out. Definitely check them out. You'll be like, wow, I had no idea that was even in Missouri, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas regions. That's cool. Yep. And beyond. Anyway, I think that pretty well wraps us up for this week. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully uh, our bottleneck, while you're in the stand this fall, you're going to be looking on those bottlenecks and, and looking at the maps and saying, okay, I need to put something on the other side of this bottleneck to make the deer travel through here even more. For sure. We'll see you on the hunting podcast. That's right. We'll, I guess we'll see you right over there. See ya. Yeah.